The calls of a dozen different birds and distant howling echoed through the night air around a small wooded clearing. The chaos of the forest played a strange dichotomy to the clearing. Out there in the trees was wilderness, dark and terrible, inconsiderate of the pain it caused you. Things died every hour and nothing stopped to notice. The clearing was different. Here there was the light of a warm campfire. It crackled softly, and the shadows that gathered at the edge of the flame light were tame and subtle. The humans gathered around the flame were gathered together in revelry. One, a woman of maybe thirty years, stood by the edge of the fire, a flute raised to her lips. The light reflected off the blue of her eyes, and the tune that carried from the flute held the same wildness. Her companions watched her in awe. The way she moved was entrancing, but again her eyes were what truly stole the show. In those sparkling blue eyes danced hope and joy and sadness and love and fear. And when the music faded, as rustling in the woods tugged at the attention of those gathered around, it wasn't until her eyes moved to the edge of the clearing that everyone sprang to their feet, ready to face what came. She called out in a commanding voice, querying that which was approaching, but whatever it was did not stop to acknowledge. It tore through the woods in a frantic flight, and in a burst of black feathers, the chaos of the forest overtook the serenity of the clearing. A slight figure, pursued by two shadows, came with such speed through the clearing that neither party could stop. They simply carried over the fire and off into the forest on the other side of the clearing. The party raced from their encampment and into the night, adding a third participant to a great race of survival. Through creeks and over hillocks they ran and ran, until the ground sloped downward and gave way to a fast-flowing river. At the head of the race, the feathered figure flew faster than the rest and carried themselves nearly to the middle of the river before being swallowed by the current. The two shadows stopped and paced momentarily along the banks before the light of torches sent them deeper into the night in search of slower snacks. The torches cast their glow out over the surface of the river, where the current was disturbed by the ungainly attempts of an exhausted creature to cling to life. The woman from the party did not hesitate and dove into the current. Limbs much more confident than the creatures carried her to the center of the river, where she grabbed at the flailing feathered features. It wasn't until eyes met eyes captivating blue spheres and pitch-black orbs that the creature calmed. Back on the shore, a jacket was commandeered to dry the wet thing. It was given a moment to catch its breath, a spare bit of jerky, and a sip from a wineskin. It soon exploded into a multitude of noises, the whining of a dog and the screeching of a wounded bird, the sound of windows breaking and the noise of harshly falling rain. But interwoven between the rest, although seemingly a different voice with each occurrence, was laughter, and the name stuck. Laughter joined the travelers and became a member of the next night's festivities. 
they added to the song of the flute and mimicked back the inappropriate jokes told by friends deep into a wineskin. They traveled through the forest and out over a great hill. At the top, they came to a large fortress. Here they made camp and did not break it the next morning. Laughter grew confused. They were given a room with a bed much nicer than anything they had ever seen. The woman with blue eyes called it a cot. Laughter was given a job copying words from older books into newer volumes. They were good at it. The woman with blue eyes had meant it to be a task to keep the young Kanku busy, but the bird took to it with tenacity, spending hours copying the calligraphy exactly. Years passed like this. Sometimes the woman with blue eyes would leave to travel once more, but laughter stayed and lived in the castle. There were others there, too. The man who smelled like flour and wine, the woman with a steely gaze and stern voice, the one who kept quiet watch on a long, cold nights, and the silent guardian who stood vigil in front of the massive black stone door. Laughter was content with copying. They felt they learned much. The language that those in the castle spoke slowly became more familiar. Laughter could get nearly anything they wanted by mimicking their voices back to them. But one day, as they walked past the black stone door, a voice called out to them. It wasn't the voice of the man who smelled like flour and wine, or any of the other castle dwellers. Laughter looked for the silent guardian, but they weren't around. Laughter moved closer to the door. They were taller now when they first arrived at the castle, but they still felt small in front of the thing. It was a massive thing. Laughter remembered the tone of the woman with the blue eyes when she spoke about the black door. But it was open. And the voice called again. They didn't recognize it. Inside the door was a special room. At the very least, it felt special, because no one was in it. The sound of laughter's footsteps carried softly over the still air. Laid out in the center of a circle of metal inlaid into the floor was a sword. The thing looked sharp, but broken. A jagged handle met a slightly bent and slightly missing blade. The voice coaxed laughter closer. When they picked up the sword, the voice was shifted. It sounded like someone standing right behind laughter. They spun and dropped the blade, but no one was there. They let out a chattering of bird calls, but no response came. They turned to the sword and picked it up. Please, you have to get me out of here. Laughter chattered nervously, making the sound of a quill scratching across paper. The voice came again, softer and yet still rough around the edges. It held a different cadence than the woman with blue eyes. When she spoke, laughter felt calm. This voice made them feel brave. I can grant you powers. Laughter cocked their head to the side, an inquisitive noise they had heard the book tender make while reading. The voice came again, softer and from the other side of laughter's body. How would you do that? Just like that. Take your thoughts and give them back to you as words. Laughter was slightly disturbed by the shifting position of the voice with no mouth. 
My thoughts? Yes, yes indeed. Mimic me when you want to say something you haven't heard before. I can give you a voice. A voice and so much more. I can help you fly. To fly, to fly. Yes, my child. Take me from here and I can help you. But the woman with blue eyes. Oh, Savannah, don't you worry. You will see her again. And imagine her surprise when you can talk and know her name. Laughter made the sound of her own name and took the sword from the room. The silent guardian was still absent from the hall, and laughter skipped down to their room. No, not here. Further. Away from the castle. Laughter stopped at the door to their room. They looked at their collection of things. A leaf of paper with an errant sketch of laughter, done by a maker of art. A special stone they had found in the woods surrounding the castle. A tuft of hair from a deer cooked in the kitchen. A silver flute, smaller than the one played by the woman with blue eyes, one she had given to laughter. Hurry now, child. We haven't much time. Laughter stole down the halls, past the kitchen where the man who smelled of flour and wine argued with the silent guardian. The guardian looked confused, but laughter did not stop to make them smile. They kept going out into the castle ground and up the walls. She saw the gate open, and the woman with blue eyes come through with her companions. Over the wall, trust me. Laughter leapt from the wall. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of I'll Tell You a Tale. Uh, I'm a your host, Nathan Westoff, and joining me is... It's Alex. How's it going, guys? And uh, today we are going to be writing a story like we always do. Uh, this story is actually going to be a little bit different. Uh, today we are going to be writing a D&D player character background story for an upcoming game we're going to be playing where I'm playing and Alex is DMing so uh, we're going to take this podcast episode to uh, write up the backstory for my character uh, and uh, we've played we've been playing D&D for uh, maybe like a year and a half now um, but we're sort of wrapping up this uh, campaign that we're playing right now where I'm the DM and uh, maybe here in the next month or so we're going to be starting up another campaign so we figured why not take this time now to uh, flesh out some interesting character ideas and uh, what what greater way to do that with a co- conversation with the uh, upcoming DM who is not the best DM but I'm going to struggle my way through it, just like we all do when we're new to something. Oh, yeah. It's been it's been a, a long and interesting journey of uh, learning how to DM for me and figuring out how much you can improv and what you actually need to plan out and just learning how far your players will take you off of what you had planned and being okay with that. Speaking as the advocate of all of those plans that go completely off the rail, there is no limit. 
<laughs> there is no limit, and now it's my turn. Um, but uh, we before we do get to that campaign, there's some other stuff that we have to uh, uh, play out, a few other story threads that we're going to wrap up. So it's a little far out, and I don't want to give any... I don't want to take any spoilers for the uh, upcoming campaign. So I think we're kind of starting off with the idea of a sort of basic fantasy. Uh, if anyone is familiar with the D&D uh, world, oh, I forget what it's called. Do you want to talk, just kind of like run over a brief idea of what kind of world we're going to be playing in? So the Wizards of the Coast are so gracious in creating the Forgotten Realms uh, that they have in here in one of these <clears throat> many books that I have. They kind of give a little uh, two paragraphs feel about it, so I'll just read it to us. So the world of the Forgotten Realms is one of high fantasy, populated by elves, dwarves, halflings, humans, and other folk. In the realm, knights dare the crypts of the fallen dwarf kings of Delzuin, seeking glory and treasure. Rogues prowl the dark alleyways of teeming cities such as Neverwind and Baldur's Gate. Clerics in the service of their gods wield mason spell, questing against the terrifying powers that threaten the land. Wizards plunder the fallen runes, oh, plunder the runes of fallen nether uh, I didn't realize how hard these words are pronounced until you say them out loud. <laughs> the Netherese Empire, delving into secrets too dark for the light of day. Bards sing of kings, queens, heroes, and tyrants who died long ago. On the roads and rivers of the realm travel minstrels, pedrels, peddlers, merchants, and guards, soldiers and sailors, Steel-heartened adventures from backcountry farmsteads and sleepy villages follow tales of strange, glorious, faraway places. Good maps and clear trails have taken even an experienced youth with dreams of glory far across the world. But these paths are never safe. Fell magic and deadly monsters are the perils one faces when traveling in the realms. Even farms and Freeholds within a day's walk of a city can fall prey to monsters, and no place is safe from the sudden wrath of a dragon. So now that I've stumbled through that and established that it's just near endless possibilities, a world of high fantasy, adventure around every corner, and stories for bards to sing for ages to come, we can go ahead and introduce Nathan's character. Yeah, so, not going to lie, very excited, also not going to lie, the basic idea of the character was not entirely my idea. Um, I saw the, like, a character idea TikTok, which all of my, I do dabble in TikTok, and all of my recommended videos, or whatever it's called, is uh, pretty much exclusively D&D content. But I stumbled upon, I can't even remember who it was, it was like months and months ago, uh, a character idea for a Kanku warlock. And uh, for those of you unfamiliar with D&D, Kanku are sort of like tiny raven bird people. And 
long ago in the history of their people, their sentience, they were cursed at some point and had their capacity for speech taken away. So Kenku can't talk. And uh, the basic idea for the character was a Kenku warlock who has gained magical powers through some uh, unnatural or natural being. Uh, and as part of that deal, they can talk through sort of their patron's voice because Kenku can mimic almost any sound that they hear. So they often will parrot back lines of dialogues that they hear and mimic bird sounds and just sort of this weird little person that is covered in feathers and can't talk and uh, a lot of the I feel like a lot of times people will stray away from playing a kenku because it is sort of that limiting uh, factor of not being able to talk but if in this idea my character is a kenku who part of the reason they are a warlock is to have gained the capacity for speech so that's kind of like the basic idea that i found off of tiktok and then stumbling through and just kind of thinking about it uh do you i mean the the kind of what i have so far will kind of spit me out at a point where i could be a level one character or we could kind of fill in the blanks with random adventuring and it could be a level a higher level character do you have any idea of like in this campaign are we starting out at level one or are we gonna jump up a few levels um i think we're gonna start out around a level five okay so for anyone not familiar with D D, uh at least D fifth edition the characters typically well they range in levels from one to twenty and those can be sort of like broken up into level one through five is sort of like the novice adventurer. And then levels five through ten are sort of like you're getting a little more notoriety. You're pretty you're getting you're getting a little stronger. You're fighting some things. And then level 15 through or level 10 through 15, you're kind of like saving kingdoms and things like that. And then levels 15 through 20, you're sort of saving the world or saving like the fabric of reality so we're sort of looking at like people who could pretty reasonably through some means save like a city or something like that of like a threat that would take out a city through some way a level five character on their journey to level 10 might cause some disaster to not fall on a city so that's kind of the quote-unquote power level that we're looking at but we're not really concerned about the D&D campaign that's going to be happening we're gonna we're gonna flesh out this backstory for this character who of course we're gonna call Mark for now uh, and how they sort of came on their powers and this is I'm gonna lay out I'm just gonna kind of ramble for a minute and kind of outline what I had for specifically this short story that we're gonna write um, and I want it to be, I don't want my character to remember where they came from because I want to play around at least in like the start of the story with the idea of 
them having sort of lost through uh, Kenku or typically at least I haven't looked up this information in a long time so forgive me if I'm wrong but they typically are like sort of tribe-like or they like they're very sort of like close-knit familial grouping and I want my character to have been lost uh, and I don't know for how long they've been lost I think like being being isolated is one thing but being isolated and being unable to speak for yourself I think is sort of a completely like foreign idea to most of us like almost kind of comes back to the idea of like people who have been raised by wolves or whatever like they don't really understand how to function in society and they don't really understand who they are they just know how to survive and so for some unspecified amount of time my character's gonna have been just sort of wandering maybe they've gone to some towns and they didn't really understand what was going on and they didn't know and they couldn't speak up for themselves so they sort of got kicked out or maybe taken advantage of in some way and so in their in their wandering I want them to have stumbled upon uh, this either temple or uh, some sort of like cultish retreat that's that those are words that probably aren't used very often together but it's like some sort of oh, what's the word i'm looking for complex like a, a compound cultish compound yeah uh where they and in in this sort of beginning of the story i'm kind of thinking maybe like third person sort of like detached like the, there's not a lot of dialogue they can't talk and so they kind of think of people as creatures and they don't really understand how a lot of that stuff works but for some reason they feel drawn towards this compound and so in the middle of the night they sneak into this compound and uh, they sort of avoid some guards and maybe there's an encounter with some guards that we write about or maybe not and they feel drawn towards this the center of the compound and they they get inside and they witness some maybe some like ceremony or something where the the cult people are either like praying over or having some ritual interaction with a broken sword blade and i'm kind of picturing in my head like a kind of like very similar to how in lord of the rings the uh the broken sword that they have laid out is like laid out on an altar. I'm kind of picturing something like that, except they don't have all the pieces. They just have like the hilt and maybe like two feet of the blade and the blade is sort of shattered and the pommel of the hilt is missing. Uh, and it's like this dark onyx shattered blade and maybe some strange handle ornament that I haven't thought about yet. Um, but the character witnesses this ritual and they kind of wait and they just feel drawn towards this sword and uh, once the cult the cultists leave they uh, go up and touch the sword and they hear this voice and it uh, is sort of startling because like 
they don't really understand speech. They've been so isolated for so long. But having a uh, having a voice speak in your head, you may not necessarily hear it as words. They sort of understand the idea and this thing, this entity offers connection to the world. It offers purpose. And the Kenku just sort of agrees. And that's the beginning of their pact. Um, I'm thinking Hexblade uh, Warlock, for those of you familiar with D&D. And uh, so they escape this compound with the, with the sword and uh, maybe the cultists find out and they're chasing it and the sword is sort of compelling them onwards and compelling them onwards and they finally get to a town and somebody says something or somebody is like, hey, what, where'd you get that sword or what are you doing? And the kanku, not inside their head, but sort of like a whispered word in their ears, they hear their patron sort of mouth words. Like, uh, I kind of picture it happening like uh, schizophrenic like how they hear voices and it sounds real like like someone is standing right behind you and whispering into your ear and they on reflex just repeat it they just mimic it back and it's a response to the question and they don't really understand what it means but it gets them out of that situation and so then they kind of run along and then uh, depending on how long the story is you kind of find out that the sword is broken and the patron isn't really all there but part of the deal they have is that the the kanku can think a thought and the patron will whisper it in their ear so they can speak it and so they've learned they learn language this way and uh they have sort of a disproportionate body or voice to body ratio they have they they are speaking in the same voice that they hear coming from this disembodied sword and i want to leave like i i think part of D D and stuff is like you don't want to know everything so i don't really want to know i think that the sword is fractured and i think that the part of it that's talking to the kanku to mark is not the whole entity and the part of the the voice that I control when I'm like role playing the character, the voice is really it's the Kenku thinking and the deal that it had made with the blade, sort of auto translating, Google translating the words into thought. And I think that can kind of come across in some sort of like uh like words that aren't quite right because the the patron itself is not solely versed in modern language and uh not really so understanding of like there's still that that weird bridge between the sort of animalistic creature that the kanku once was and what society is um but that's kind of the idea that i had and i wanted to play around with is do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think that would be something that would work in the kind of world that you have planned? So I think an interesting twist with this would be so the Kenku stumbles along, uh, he encounters or they encounter 
the guards of said compound and kind of, I mean, it's pretty charming and kind of cute. I mean, if you've seen the critical role, they all instantly fall in love with the Kenku that they find because they just mimic. And so the guards may, might be taken in by this Kenku that suddenly stumbles in and they kind of bring it into the compound and it becomes kind of like a community pet or a friend and then they're introduced to like what the cult is worshiping and when they do that they have this overpowering voice or maybe it's just images and it's like the sword is communicating with the kenku and it puts the words into the kenku's mouth and it then you begin speaking what the sword is saying and all of a sudden you are now the point of worship for this cult and they're so drawn in because you are now the conduit to communication with their deity and so you become the figurehead of this cult and then one night the sword is telling like that night the sword is telling you I want you to steal me and I want you to take me away from this because I'm broken and I need you to find the rest of me so that I can be whole again and I will grant you these eldritch powers, the, the warlock kind of based powers, if you're willing to steal me away and take me on this quest to find the shattered pieces of of me and so then you kind of have to escape from the cult that you're the the figurehead of and then go on this quest of finding the rest of this sword i do i really like that idea of like uh not so much like sneaking in and stealing it, but because also uh, warlocks specifically are a charisma-based class, which I think part of the charming Kenku makes up for that. So it makes more sense that they're sort of indoctrinated into whatever this cult is. And yeah, I, I do really like that. And I was I was kind of thinking, I think like the the sort of idea, the in my in my opinion, the best. Thing that you can do with a D&D character backstory is um, lay the seeds for some future conflict and put maybe some tragic or maybe some character building moments into your character's life and then make a reason that your character would join up with a group of strangers because that is typically how most D&D parties are formed strangers. Um, so I think we have like some interesting character ideas like the Kenku who's not really aware of how society works and also the patron is not super aware of how society works. And the I like the idea that like the Kenku doesn't really understand or care that they're going to be like getting they're like Yes, I will give you all of these powers to kill and and create things and magic and the Kenku's like but I just wanna 
I just want to be able to talk and I just want to understand who I am. And so like, that's the most important part of the deal. And so like in, in the case where maybe the Kenku is like, doesn't do something that the patron likes, they like sort of take their voice away or something like that. Um, but but then on on top of that the the kenku is just looking for that flock that kind of um uh what did you said the tribe that close-knit like a familial kind of relationship because they have been lost and isolated and they're kind of like the the found family yeah they're they're like imagine like an exchange student going to another country and you don't speak the language that's a perpetual state of being for this Kenku. And so finding the patron and suddenly being gifted this ability to speak and communicate, they are, they seize upon that because they're like, oh, all of a sudden, like I'm fluent. I can speak to people and this is such a gift and amazing. And I don't care about the powers. But then like you said, like most of the time a warlock disobeys their patron's desires and they take powers away. But in this case, they'll just take away the power of communication because that's the most powerful thing to this Kenku is being able to talk to people. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. And I'm not... I'm, I'm uh, both excited for it, but also kind of like uh, nervous, cold feet because like we, we do a little bit of role playing but we probably won't get into a whole bunch of it uh just kind of the style that we have but it is it's just something very interesting to think about um but and then bouncing back to the so the the character is already set up to like find that found family and uh they have sort of the uh, some defining moments and then I think that idea of having run away from the cult is sort of like sets up some future like encounters or something so like maybe they like I, I do like I like the idea of the, the sword saying like take me away from here and then they do and then the cult is like wait what and they are like hunting this bird and the so like the bird will like I, at some point I, I'll, I'll leave that up to you but like if they ever run back into this cult like they don't want to give up their Google Translate like they can't go back to being an animal so they're either going to have to run away or fight to keep the sword and uh, but thinking on that like that idea of like take me away from here if it wasn't a cult if it was like if it was like a monastery that the the Kenku like stumbled into a monastery and like or like a clergy and they were like this is the way that we do this this is what we're doing here and then the whole reason that this monastery exists is to keep this sword and the entity inside of it sealed away and so they're like they're brought into it and uh maybe like the first night that they're there they're like they get a they get their very own room and they get like a bed and then they fall asleep and they like they feel like drawn towards something and they like go they like go out into the monastery and they find this locked door 
they can't get into the locked door. So like the next morning they like go out and they're like, they just don't really understand. But like the, the caretaker who like comes to get them like checks on them. And then the Kanku kind of leads them towards the door and like cocks its head to the side inquisitively. And the, the caretaker like kind of brushes it off and like, Oh, don't worry about that. And then they sort of like over X amount of time, they build up a relationship and they, kind of either charm their way into the room and inside the room they find the sword and the sword because the the sword that's the whole thing it wants to get out it's trapped it needs to find itself it needs to it's not full and it doesn't uh it wants to be a full sword again but this this monastery is keeping it separate and so it makes the deal with the kanku and gives it the speech and in exchange the kanku has to break it out and maybe that's the where the rest of the sword is is split up and hidden in different monasteries and so like part of what the war or part of what the sword wants is to maybe like break into another monastery at some point i think that's a really good that almost leads to more possibilities because maybe the group of monks or whatever the guardians um instead of establishing all these monasteries they just have groups of these monks that just are constantly traveling and because they think that the safest way to keep these shards separated is to keep them constantly moving and so the biggest shard they keep at their monastery or their home base or the castle or whatever but then uh that you could just like encounter these traveling parties and that would really be able to just tie into whatever the party is doing at the time albeit like if they're in the same place twice you could encounter a group of the monks or the guardians where you didn't encounter them the last time just depending on where you're at in the story and that would that would add a lot more possibilities to it instead of trying to have to go and find the temple because then and there could be other temples with with larger shards but yeah and i i don't i i like that i like that idea i think that the, i think that the kenku and me don't know i think i'll leave that up to you i don't i think they don't know where the rest of the sword is and i think that the 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 entity whatever it is might have some idea but they're they might not even be sure about it and they're looking and maybe there is some that's traveling but that that whole idea of like high fantasy like tavern that's hanging out and like then you see there's like a group of people in a corner and they're like have hoods over their clothes or maybe like there's a a town a group that rolls into town and they they hole up in the inn for a few days and they stay in their rooms and only one person comes down to get food and like they're traveling with the sword and like the the king kid doesn't give a fuck about them they're just sort of vibing and learning how to fit into their newfound family and then the sword is like hey uh hate to break it to you but uh we need to kill these people or investigate them i don't know how i think i think the personality of the sword I want to leave up to you. I, I think I don't. I think I don't want to know much about it. And I think like how much it communicates with the Kanku is also up to you. Because once, 
once it's sort of established that deal, I think the like I may like the I'm in in role playing the character of the Kanku. I am not role playing the character of the entity. And I may talk in the entity's voice, but that is just the thoughts of the Kanku being translated. So what is your sense? Um, I kind of, what is your thought out um, character alignment for this Kanku? Um, I was, I'm, I'm getting like some really heavy, like a neutral good kind of vibes. Like they just want to be happy and they're not really too concerned about what else is going on. Yeah, I think I think neutral good. Like they're not or may, maybe like neutral good leaning neutral chaotic because like like they're sort of uh they sort of lean into that idea of like uh in the same like almost like a like a like a dog, like like an attention whore, like that's part of the charisma. It's like, ooh, look at me, I'm so cute. Cheep cheep burp 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 beep. Like, look at me, pay attention to me. And like, so maybe like that's how like if they like go into a tavern, the party's like inquiring with some wizard about a quest. The Kenku like wanders over to the bar and it's like, hey, uh, can I have some alcohol, please? <laughs> like, I just want to be attention. Look at me, I'm so cute. I'm a little bird, but they also talk in this weird disembodied sword voice. Yeah, that. So I was thinking for the patron to be almost like a counter, uh, counter alignment to the Kenku. So if the Kenku is just inherently innocent and this cute, but kind of a little bit chaotic because things that are cute are chaotic. And so then, like, the patron could just be, like, kill. And then like, the, everyone's, like, uh... Lawful evil. Lawful evil, for sure. Like, the, the only... <laughs> you must meditate for one hour in the blood, with the blood on your hands of the, my enemy. And, and the, but it doesn't translate through the Kenku because it's just this happy-go-lucky bird that's just happy to talk to people. And then you have this sword that's like, kill anybody that furthers my goals towards completing me and making me whole again. Yeah, and like, the, the bird doesn't realize that it's evil. Like, it's it's like, oh, that makes sense. Like, I've been an animal. I've, I've been isolated. Like, I've had things hunt me, and now I just am the hunter sometimes. But not all the time. Most of the time, I just am trying to learn how to talk. And like, some of that... Uh, some of the confu- confusion of the translation is like uh, the bird thinking man I'm really like a drink I want a drink and the they're thinking I want a drink and the patron translates that as give me a drink Yep. and so like they'll go up to the, the bar or whatever and be like I want a drink and they're, the real way they say it is like give me a drink in this like deep commanding voice <laughs> and like i think it leaves a lot of possibilities for just kind of weird like uh misinterpretations of intent and 
and like so oftentimes the kenku will like i know i could say this but i'm going to be better off further pretending like i can't talk and pretending like i'll just repeat what the what the bartender says back to me then i'll then it'll say something and i'll chirp and ruffle my feathers and look excited rather than talk because although i do have this voice it's not perfect but it's all i have and if I remember correctly, the Kenku, once they hear a sound and imitate it, they can remember that later on and kind of like, okay, so I've, I've done this sound before. Like they can do that sound again. So like once they've made that sound, so maybe the longer it goes on, the more true the Kenku's words become towards its yeah, intent yeah. but like initially very gruff very lawful evil very scary and intimidating but like as they go on and they build their you could say it's a, like building their vocabulary of this stash of words that they're remembering that they've used before they can kind of sp speak more to themselves yeah i, I had a like I, i'm gonna keep a paper or maybe a word document with just every now and then I'll just pick up on a phrase that either an NPC says or another player character says and then I'll have sort of this compendium that I can look back on and think and I, I, I really like the idea I hope well I, I, I was gonna say I hope no one else plays a high charisma character but I don't hope that because charisma characters are so fun but I like the idea of the Kenku having high charisma being a warlock and so the party's like well you need to negotiate this deal and the kenku being like yeah maybe that's not the best idea because i when i try to talk on my own i sound like a demon <laughs> so the party <laughs> will feed voice lines to the kenku and they're like all right what are all the things that you have to say so you have to negotiate this with these five lines and maybe there's like a weird like mix-up and that I, I don't i don't know i don't know if i'm skilled enough to play this character but i just so much like the idea that i want to i want to at least try it yeah and it could be really interesting uh, a really interesting learning curve for the entirety of the party and it could kind of add in a role-playing aspect that they don't even realize because they'll be like okay whose charisma is the highest oh it's yours, so how about you go and negotiate with the guards uh, to let us into this situation? And then, so you're like, okay, I can do that. And then you walk up to the guards and you say something along the lines of, if you do not let me pass, I will spill your blood and bathe in the fountain that persists. And they're just, your party's like, oh my, what did we do? But they're, so they're kind of like realizing that, okay, He's a little dark and morbid if you let him on his own, but if you feed him these lines, we can make things less scary. I just imagine a ranger or like a rogue, like pulling my character aside, like hands on the shoulder, like that scene in uh, 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 Guardians of the Galaxy, like, do not push this button. I will kill all of I you. am Groot? No. I am Groot. <laughs> Dude, like, we need a room. We need your cheapest rooms for the night. 
give me your soul? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, you will be my slave? I'm like, ah, oh, god damn it, this fucking bird. It's very much so an I am Groot character, but with a little bit larger vocabulary. Yeah. And I like the idea of... Um, it's something that we don't really touch on. I like the idea of when you have to do something in D&D, you will like make a persuasion check or you'll make an athletics check. And like typically, like say you're like, I want to jump over that river. Like, okay, we'll go ahead and make an athletics check. Oh, I got an 18. Cool, you jump over the river. Or, oh, I got a 1. Ah, oh, you fall into the river. With like persuasion checks and things like that, it's typically like you'll be role playing and you'll say something and then the DM will say, well, okay, hold on, hold on, make a persuasion check. Let's see how successful you are. I want to try and do my best to moderate myself. And before I say something, I'll be like, well, this is what I want to do. I'm going to make a persuasion check and say I roll high. Well, it just so happens I come across the right words or say I roll low. Uh oh, I'm kind of there's some stuff lost in translation. And it could be really interesting because we could. Everybody knows that the the best part about Dungeons and Dragons is rolling dice. So the more opportunities you have to roll dice, the better your game is for the player. In my opinion, like if you if you sit through a whole session and you get to roll like two d20s and it was like uh, whatever that was fun because I got to play, but I only got to roll twice, so it kind of sucked. But with this particular, so as a DM, I could, in turn, if you're, if you're wanting to go up and talk to someone, I could have you make a check to communicate with your patron what your intent is to say, and then off of that check would set the DC for your, or would set like a modifier plus or minus to the DC of your persuasion check so let's say you're communicating with your patron. They don't really understand what you want to say. They give you this. They feed you this line, and then you walk up to the guards and say, "I'll murder your family if you don't give everything to me." And they like that's not what you wanted to say, but you rolled low for your initial. I don't even know what kind of check that would be. I'm I'm having to think of it right now, and it's like, like an like an. It'd be like the warlock equivalent of a religion check, I guess. Yeah, or even like a like an insight check, but for your patron, right? Like I, it would be a role that maybe the DM would make that yeah. your your patron would understand what you're trying to get him to tell you to say. Yeah, I do. I like the idea. I feel like. I feel like if every time something like that, like anytime there's like an interaction, it can be kind of, I like that like the, the rolling is fun, but I don't want to like be bogged down by every roll. So maybe it's like, it is sort of this pre-existing link or like sort of like a, a, like a computer program that's running in the brain of the Kanku. And so like it can think and then the voice will be whispered in it into its head. But like, for things that are important, like bribing a guard or something like that, then it's like the Kenku like thinks and it's like, hey, uh, can we 
can we not do the scary sword voice? And then it's like a role of insight of like working with the patron to like not do that. And then the the things mess up and everything. Yeah. And obviously like if you're ordering drinks or talking with party members or just like an innocent conversation with some NPCs, like you're not going to be rolling six pairs of dice just to determine whether or not you can get your point across. But if you're in the middle of something trying to bribe a guard or what be it then do if you're doing something important with a vocal aspect there will be a little bit more rolling involved because you're yeah yeah trying to communicate your point through this entity that's then giving you line back that you know there is a little bit more mechanics yeah, I to think, it. I think we're on the same page. I, I, I like I like where this is headed. It is it's just such a it's such an interesting idea. I, I really wish I could figure out if I if I could find or remember what or who the idea was. Um, but it was it was just like this whatever how long TikToks are, fifteen, ten seconds of like, look, this is a cool idea. this is an interesting idea. Play with it if you want. And then I was like I can't stop thinking about that. That would that is that is just so cool, just so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I f- this is definitely gonna be really fun and interesting. And I I love the because there's a lot of player to player interaction in D and D, and I feel like sometimes the DM is just kind of like observing everything, and they're like, "Yes, this is so awesome." And then as a DM, you kind of get that like. Oh, I wish I was playing in part of this, but with when you have a character playing with a item that has consciousness, you're like, "Here's my opportunity." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that idea that like the sword doesn't like sword doesn't always talk to me, but then every now and then, like, whoa, I didn't think that thought, but it still got whispered into my ear really creepily. Like, yep. And there will always be that, like, drive towards, hey, you see those guys over there? I can feel it that they have a shard of me in their possession, and you need to go retrieve it. And then it's up to the Kenku to be like, okay, well, he said this, so does that mean I have to go over there with the party and fight them? Or can I sneakily train, partner up with the rogue and go steal it? Or get the barbarian to go over there and intimidate them into giving it to me, or whatever. And it really opens up a lot of opportunity to exploit characters and their traits. And very, very briefly, I don't want to get bogged down with any like the what's the constitution modifier going to be or anything like that. But when you're thinking about warlocks, they're sort of like spellcasters, and then the hexblade specifically has obviously a blade that is sort of like their packed weapon and they get sort of bonuses to attacks with it like they can use their charisma modifier to swing their sword with their packed weapon uh and all those things so like just having this little bird with this like it it's like the size of a long sword for the kanku but would probably be like a short sword for somebody else <laughs> they're like moving in and out of combat with this short sword uh, laying curses on people so that they do more damage and things like that. And just this, like, the Kenku's like, all right, uh, I don't really understand how all this stuff works, so 
during combat, I'm going to give a little bit more of myself over to the patron and sort of, sort of let them drive a little bit. React more on instinct than killer instinct. Or I guess I said instinct twice, but... Yeah, I definitely like that because you don't really think of the Kenku as like a violent fighting... So like to give yourself over to your patron during combat, just it kind of makes sense with the whole thing. Especially when it's in the patron's best... Like, not always when you have the warlocks, but it's not always focused on the warlock themselves. But in this instance, it's in the patron's best. Yeah, and so maybe that's, like, sort of uh, played into the the choices that I'll make. So, like, if, if we're if we're fighting a dragon or something and one of my friends goes down, I'll be like, oh, well, I've got this spell slot and dimension door saved. I'll run over there and teleport with them away. But if we're fighting the cultists and one of my friends go down and I see the cult or the paladin or whoever it is running away with the sword blade, I might look at my friend and think, man, I wish I could help you, but I'm being compelled away to chase down. I have to, I have to go kill this person. Sorry. You're gonna have to wait. Yep. Yeah, and that'll really play into, like, it's not. It's in the patron's. What I was trying to say is, it's in the patron's best interest to keep you alive. Because you're as it'll be in their best interest to keep you alive as long as you're continuing to help them regain the rest of the shards of the blade. Yeah, and it is sort of like. I like I don't know I don't know a whole lot about the patron. I I kind of had like a faint idea that as like some wizard enchanted a sword at some point and then it like sucked themselves in or something like that and then it broke and then they they're trying to get all this power and then this whatever this cult or this thing kind of gathered up the pieces and is keeping them separate. But I don't really know much about that and I'll just leave it vague because that's something you can do with storytelling. But then like the idea of like the patron is kind of like plays either either they're playing dumb or they are just a little like they've been isolated for so long so like there's sort of that that weird mirror between the patron and the kanku like the kanku was isolated they couldn't talk they couldn't interact with people they didn't have a family and so they kind of lost themselves and the whatever this thing is inside the sword is broken and it's been kept in this basement being guarded for so long that it it's kind of weird and it's kind of broken and it, it, it can't communicate with people and they won't let it and so like there's sort of like a weird mirror of them kind of finding themselves a little bit and obviously the the patron doesn't really necessarily even have to care about but like I think that's that's something to think about as whatever way you want to take it as the dm if the maybe the sword is lawful evil but it doesn't necessarily have to be okay we're gonna get my sword back together and then we're gonna destroy the world like this really is a character that you can design the intent of and so if it makes sense to you that the sword 
wants to do these things than it can, but also the idea of, well, maybe the sword's like, maybe the whole intention of the sword is to get whole. And once it gets whole, it's just sort of like this satisfying bliss. And it's like, ah, okay, now I can just relax. And I'm still evil and I still don't care about things, but also I'm not going to like, not going to make you kill your friends, man. You're like, I was broken for so long and you repaid me in this little bit way. Like it doesn't have to be the, the warlock selling their soul to a demon. It's sort of this weird bond that has formed. Yeah. And, and kind of just what I'm thinking is that maybe it was this powerful enchanter long, long, long ago he needed a powerful weapon, and so he forged this sword and bonded it with this creature from the Shadowfell, and it had all this power, and then someone overthrew him, and of course this sword had a consciousness, and then when they overthrew him and killed him, they destroyed his sword and spread it all apart. So all the sword really wants is to just be whole again and then once it's whole again as long as it's used as a sword and it's not like destroyed and ripped apart and shattered apart it just revels in the fact that it's ah oh, yes like finally like i am me again like it has its own consciousness back and i really like the idea of the more like the sword is kind of slow at first it's not really entirely there, but as you gather more pieces to it, it slowly gains more personality and it kind of comes back into who it is. And the more pieces that is, are there, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, it's rebuilding not only its physical self, but also its mental self. And maybe the more that it rebuilds itself, it's then more grateful towards the Kenku. And so then in, it grants you more powers. Like as you level up, you gain more Eldritch powers and more magics that the sword is granting you because it's more whole and then yada, yada, yada down the road. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, uh, I think all of this stuff is super cool and I really like where it is, and I think it's super interesting to explore, but I feel like it should be important to stress that I don't want this to become the campaign. I don't want the party to be recruited into looking for sword pieces. Like A lot of this should go on not on the front stage like not every session should be i need a new piece to this sword i think it like maybe like an interaction here then maybe it doesn't pop up for a little while because D D is in some like in the same way that our podcast is collective storytelling that's what D D is it's it's going to be you and me and ethan and all our friends just hanging out telling the story and I want them to be obviously included in every every bit of way and everything. And so 
I want I know all of them are going to have interesting ideas and I want those characters to be like th- that's what makes the story so cool is all these characters interacting and it's not just this which I feel like we both know but just for anyone listening who's never played D&D before like all this stuff is super cool but it's not going to be what the story's about yep and maybe the BBEG will have a shard of the sword but that's not the reason that you guys have your encounter with them it's just a little relic that they've collected and they are kind of holding on to it because they're like, ooh, I can sense that there's some magical power to this or, you know, something along those lines. Like BBEG standing for big, bad, evil guy, for those of you not in the loop. Yeah, just the the main bad guy or, or one of the main bad guys, depending on how the campaign really goes out. But it'll it'll just have to be like a little Easter egg every now and then, you know. If you find a, a shard of the sword every session, it's going to have to make them... Because it's going to be like the long-term goal that you're striving for. So theoretically, until you're up in the higher level range, you should never have a complete sword. And so if you find a, a shard of that sword every session, they're going to have to be so minute that it won't even really matter to get like just this little sliver of metal. So with all that being concluded, we're gonna make a full loop around and I'm gonna kinda of say what, what I think we should do and what I what I kinda of like. Uh, I liked our idea with the monks or whatever and you get brought in and then you are kind of befriended and then every night you're hearing this voice in your head and you're driven to go down and find out what's in this room. You eventually break in, you steal the keys, uh, you pick the lock, whatever, I'll leave that up to you. You get into the room and you find the sword or the, sh- the, the small little bit that they have and it kind of flashes all these images and it tells you like, I used to be so great and beautiful and glorious and all I desire is to be whole again. If you can take me from this place and find my shards and complete me, I would be so grateful. I'll, I'll loan you all these powers and then you guys make this pact. So you're the Hexblade at that point. And then uh, you have to steal the sword away in the night and you run away from the monks so then you have the monks are pursuing you because you just stole this relic that they're guarding. And then on top of that, they have determined, and you might not be too aware of this at the point, but you might have an inkling of the idea because maybe the traveling groups of the monks will stop into the temple every once in a while and like you'll learn about them. You'll know that there's groups of them that travel around, but you're not aware that they have the shards until the swords tells you. And maybe that plays into the fact of how the Kanku comes to be in the monastery. Like maybe they are lost. They're lost in the woods and they're feeling they're just like an animal. They've maybe just left a city or something like that. And maybe they encounter a like a fox or a 
goblin or a knoll or something like that and they are injured and they're running away from it and then they're sort of rescued uh, by one of the traveling monks and they travel with these people for a little while and the monks take them back to the monastery and maybe that's like an NPC character that like isn't at the monastery when he when it dies but sort of like something that a character that the bird impresses and is impressed upon impressed uh it's like a, an important character to the bird and uh then the bird the thing's like well well i have to go out back out but you're still injured so stay here and learn and then i'll be back in time and before the character ever comes back the kanku's gone with the sword Yep. Yeah, I really like that. Like, that's how the Kenku comes to the monastery or the castle in the first place is that while they're lost and traveling around, they encounter the group of traveling monks. That's how they know about it. And then once they get back to the castle, then they start hearing the voices of the sword. Mm -hmm. And it plays into, like, the idea of, like, the Kenku goes along with it because that's, that's what the Kenku wants. It wants to be a part of a family it wants to have those things but maybe something happens and it just like there's there's still that communication barrier and so maybe like they're like maybe like they get back to the place and they're like here drink this soup and grow strong and they're like this soup is fucking gross i don't want to eat this shit and it's like ah oh, you're just sick and you don't understand like we don't understand you you're just a squawking bird here eat the soup eat the soup like god damn it like I st- you're supposed to, this this is better than how i've been treated but i still can't talk and then what the patron is like "Ooh, this is something i can play yeah. off of hey i'll give you a voice so i think we've pretty much completely fleshed it all out yeah i feel like we talked for quite a bit this, this is probably going to end up being a little bit longer uh, story maybe I, I I have nothing written down, but from from what we're talking about, it might it might end up being a little bit longer. So we should probably wrap up, um, and then uh, get everything put together and ready to post. Um, so yeah, that was it. That was our episode. Uh, we should run through our plugs real quick. So just quick. a finishing note, um, since we are starting on level five, in your backstory, I would like it to include all of the information about getting found by the monks, getting brought back to the castle, and then finding your first shard. Okay. Yeah, so, so it'll probably be a longer story for sure. Um and I don't know, at the time of recording right now, I'm not sure how much of it is going to fit and if it works better to keep the podcast shorter. Um, I'll, I'll put in like a note uh, at the beginning of the episode before you guys even listen to the story, uh, just sort of like a disclaimer about uh, maybe there's something a little bit different about the formatting of this or maybe the whole thing's not an audio uh, form, but... Uh, we'll see. It, it'll probably end up being a little bit longer than what we normally do, which is fine. But we'll put all those things into there. And then now, having said that, was there anything else, or should we go ahead and start plugging our our various forms? Oh, wait. We forgot to do recommendations. 
My recommendation. Recommendation. My recommendation is a story from the Edge Chronicles by Paul Stewart and Chris Rydell. It's called The Curse of the Gloam Glozer. It is kind of a fantasy kind of book, and it's about... It's in this world where the rocks float, and at one point there was this big rock, and they start to grow on the surface, and then eventually they grow big enough that they'll just boop, pop off of the earth and just float away. And so there's one rock that grows so big, and then they attach this chain to it, and they call it the anchor, and then it floats up, and then they, the rock continues to grow, while they have it chained in place and then there's this whole city that they build on it with this university and there's earth scholars and uh sky scholars and they the earth ones obviously study things that go on in the earth and then the sky they study the clouds and the mist and all of that and then it just goes on and it's in this really interesting fantasy world there's not really so much magic in it but it's just such an entirely different like rocks float and it's it's a really interesting book i've been really enjoying it yeah it sounds interesting i I don't think i've ever heard of it the edge chronicles you said yep it's the curse of the gloam glozer g-l-o-a-m-g-l-o-z-e-r Definitely sort of like that high fantasy uh, kick that we're on with this D&D campaign. Um, I, too, have a recommendation. Mine is sort of unrelated to everything that we've been talking about. Uh, I want to go ahead and plug our uncle actually wrote a book. Um, you, He was on an episode. Oops, excuse me. He was on an episode with us and with Ethan um, where he wrote the story about the um, the cowboy who makes a deal with the devil, uh, if you all remember him. Uh, he's actually still writing that book, but he actually wrote and published a book that is an audiobook and also a digital ebook uh, that you guys can all read. Uh, it is... A Captain at War? Yes. It's here on my bookshelf. I was not prepared. Yes. A Captain at War. Stories of an American Advisor in Fallujah, Iraq by Christopher Westoff. Um, it is sort of a short anthology of sorts of just like just small moments in his life um, across being overseas um, and just just it was it was so eye-opening for me to read having no idea like we we have a lot of family in the military and like they go over there but like you're like oh yeah he's overseas i have no idea what he's doing over there and just to like get that that insight of well oh this is what he's doing and this is these are the kinds of experiences and not everyone's deployments are the same and not everyone's are over there but these are the kinds of things that may or may not have happened to people and it's just sort of like it was just it it was an incredible read i I picked it up and i could not stop reading it uh it's not very long it's so worth checking out again that's 
a captain at war if you're looking for it actually the best place to find it is Westoff Writers. Um, they're on Twitter, and they also have a website. Um, you, I'll actually, uh, the best way, if you guys are interested in looking at that, I will put a plug on our website, and I'll also tweet it out, which brings us sort of roundabout into our own plugs. If you're interested in those places, you can find them and more information like them on our Twitter, which is at ITYA tail and also on our website which is www.ityatail.com that's t a l e not t a i l but those are website and our other ideas um we also you guys can leave us comments we're kind of toying around with the idea of having a reddit Subthread because we also want to introduce this new idea um, for the way that we end our episodes. We want to put like a seed of an idea out into the into the ether for our next episode. A sort of prompt anything that a story can continue to gleam to. So uh, we're gonna throw those out. But if you guys want to prompt us our yourselves. You can leave us an iTunes review, and we will read our iTunes reviews. And if anyone has prompted something, you might show up in one of our episodes as a prompt here at the end. Um, and I feel like the we already sort of have a prompt uh, for this next uh, episode, which I will go ahead and let you say. So the prompt kind of for our next episode is everybody's had a dream that feels real. So the character in this short story will either have had a dream or a series of dreams that seem extremely real. And it'll either be a slow realization, but with it being a short story and all, it'll more than likely be a sudden snap. And it'll just be, maybe you were in a dream taking a picture of something that was going on and then you wake up and pictures of that what you thought was a dream are actually on your phone and it's the more that I've been thinking on it it's kind of going to be like a dark like a something kind of scary like a bad dream come true and so that's going to be what we're I'm not going to elaborate too much on it because that'll ruin yeah, next time say, but let's, let's leave it a little vague but something along those lanes lines of a dream not actually being a dream Fading into reality yep. so if anybody has anything to add on to that feel free to like nathan said give an itunes review um hit us up on our twitter page hopefully i'll have a subreddit up going soon we could get some feedback on on that and we also have our email oh of course yeah uh, at our we are ityatail at gmail.com shoot us over an email uh, we'll read it and uh, feel really special uh, and uh, with that being said thanks so much for listening hope you all enjoyed it I've been Nathan and I'm Alex and uh, depending on the format of this you might be about to listen to our story again have a great day
The calls of a dozen different birds and distant howling echoed through the night air around a small wooded clearing. The chaos of the forest played a strange dichotomy to the clearing. Out there in the trees was wilderness, dark and terrible, inconsiderate of the pain it caused you. Things died every hour and nothing stopped to notice. The clearing was different. Here there was the light of a warm campfire. It crackled softly, and the shadows that gathered at the edge of the flame light were tame and subtle. The humans gathered around the flame were gathered together in revelry. One, a woman of maybe thirty years, stood by the edge of the fire, a flute raised to her lips. The light reflected off the blue of her eyes, and the tune that carried from the flute held the same wildness. Her companions watched her in awe. The way she moved was entrancing, but again her eyes were what truly stole the show. In those sparkling blue eyes danced hope and joy and sadness and love and fear. And when the music faded, as rustling in the woods tugged at the attention of those gathered around, it wasn't until her eyes moved to the edge of the clearing that everyone sprang to their feet, ready to face what came. She called out in a commanding voice, querying that which was approaching, but whatever it was did not stop to acknowledge. It tore through the woods in a frantic flight, and in a burst of black feathers, the chaos of the forest overtook the serenity of the clearing. A slight figure, pursued by two shadows, came with such speed through the clearing that neither party could stop. They simply carried over the fire and off into the forest on the other side of the clearing. The party raced from their encampment and into the night, adding a third participant to a great race of survival. Through creeks and over hillocks they ran and ran, until the ground sloped downward and gave way to a fast-flowing river. At the head of the race, the feathered figure flew faster than the rest and carried themselves nearly to the middle of the river before being swallowed by the current. The two shadows stopped and paced momentarily along the banks before the light of torches sent them deeper into the night in search of slower snacks. The torches cast their glow out over the surface of the river, where the current was disturbed by the ungainly attempts of an exhausted creature to cling to life. The woman from the party did not hesitate and dove into the current. Limbs much more confident than the creatures carried her to the center of the river where she grabbed at the flailing feathered features. It wasn't until eyes met eyes captivating blue spheres and pitch-black orbs that the creature calmed. Back on the shore, a jacket was commandeered to dry the wet thing. It was given a moment to catch its breath, a spare bit of jerky, and a sip from a wineskin. It soon exploded into a multitude of noises, the whining of a dog and the screeching of a wounded bird, the sound of windows breaking and the noise of harshly falling rain. But interwoven between the rest, although seemingly a different voice with each occurrence, was laughter, and the name stuck. Laughter joined the travelers and became a member of the next night's festivities.
They added to the song of the flute and mimicked back the inappropriate jokes told by friends deep into a wineskin. They traveled through the forest and out over a great hill. At the top, they came to a large fortress. Here they made camp and did not break it the next morning. Laughter grew confused. They were given a room with a bed much nicer than anything they had ever seen. The woman with blue eyes called it a cot. Laughter was given a job copying words from older books into newer volumes. They were good at it. The woman with blue eyes had meant it to be a task to keep the young Kanku busy, but the bird took to it with tenacity, spending hours copying the calligraphy exactly. Years passed like this. Sometimes the woman with blue eyes would leave to travel once more, but laughter stayed and lived in the castle. There were others there, too. The man who smelled like flour and wine, the woman with a steely gaze and stern voice, the one who kept quiet watch on a long, cold nights, and the silent guardian who stood vigil in front of the massive black stone door. Laughter was content with copying. They felt they learned much. The language that those in the castle spoke slowly became more familiar. Laughter could get nearly anything they wanted by mimicking their voices back to them. But one day, as they walked past the black stone door, a voice called out to them. It wasn't the voice of the man who smelled like flour and wine, or any of the other castle dwellers. Laughter looked for the silent guardian, but they weren't around. Laughter moved closer to the door. They were taller now when they first arrived at the castle, but they still felt small in front of the thing. It was a massive thing. Laughter remembered the tone of the woman with the blue eyes when she spoke about the black door. But it was open. And the voice called again. They didn't recognize it. Inside the door was a special room. At the very least, it felt special, because no one was in it. The sound of laughter's footsteps carried softly over the still air. Laid out in the center of a circle of metal inlaid into the floor was a sword. The thing looked sharp, but broken. A jagged handle met a slightly bent and slightly missing blade. The voice coaxed laughter closer. When they picked up the sword, the voice was shifted. It sounded like someone standing right behind laughter. They spun and dropped the blade, but no one was there. They let out a chattering of bird calls, but no response came. They turned to the sword and picked it up. Please, you have to get me out of here. Laughter chattered nervously, making the sound of a quill scratching across paper. The voice came again, softer and yet still rough around the edges. It held a different cadence than the woman with blue eyes. When she spoke, laughter felt calm. This voice made them feel brave. I can grant you powers. Laughter cocked their head to the side, an inquisitive noise they had heard the book tender make while reading. The voice came again, softer and from the other side of laughter's body. How would you do that? Just like that. Take your thoughts and give them back to you as words. Laughter was slightly disturbed by the shifting position of the voice with no mouth. 
My thoughts? Yes, yes indeed. Mimic me when you want to say something you haven't heard before. I can give you a voice. A voice and so much more. I can help you fly. To fly, to fly. Yes, my child. Take me from here and I can help you. But the woman with blue eyes, oh, Savannah, don't you worry. You will see her again. And imagine her surprise when you can talk and know her name. Laughter made the sound of her own name and took the sword from the room. The silent guardian was still absent from the hall, and laughter skipped down to their room. No, not here, further, away from the castle. Laughter stopped at the door to their room. They looked at their collection of things. A leaf of paper with an errant sketch of laughter, done by a maker of art. A special stone they had found in the woods surrounding the castle. A tuft of hair from a deer cooked in the kitchen. A silver flute, smaller than the one played by the woman with blue eyes, one she had given to laughter. Hurry now, child. We haven't much time. Laughter stole down the halls, past the kitchen where the man who smelled of flour and wine argued with the silent guardian. The guardian looked confused, but laughter did not stop to make them smile. They kept going out into the castle ground and up the walls. She saw the gate open, and the woman with blue eyes come through with her companions. Over the wall, trust me. Laughter leapt from the wall.